You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. This is Eddie Coyle. I got five Smiths, two Lugas, and a 357 mag. You can open a mag with that thing all by yourself. And these are his friends. Same place where we were before. I'll be there with the money. You be there with those damn guns. Because if you ain't, I'll be looking for you and I'll find you too. Hell, the way I hear it, you may be mixed up in something that's going on. What did you do? You hit me a lot. Suppose I was to give you those guys if I'm knocking off the banks. Are you hooked in with the mafia or something? I'll tell you the truth, I don't know. This heavy set guy, you know? People are desperate for guns. I had a guy ask me seriously the other day, can I get him a few machine guns? You tell me about a guy that's going to get hit, 15 minutes later he gets hit. You tell me about some guys in a job, but you don't tell me till they're coming out the door with the money. Suppose we was to talk about machine guns. Look, I got two problems selling machine guns to people like you. The first is selling machine guns. That's life in this state. If I give you this, I can't do no time. These guys have got friends, you know, and uh, I would live to get out. We could take him now. We take him. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Andrew Rausch. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Eric Peterson. Hello. Glad to be here. We continue November 2020 with a look at Peter Yates's The Friends of Eddie Coyle. 
Based on the novel by George V. Higgins, the film stars Robert Mitchum as the titular coil, an over-the-hill small-time crook who's trying to get by in the milieu of Boston's underground. The film is rich with incredible character actors like Peter Boyle, Richard Jordan, Alex Rocco, etc., And we're going to be spoiling this movie as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film. We will still be here. So, Andrew, when was the first time you saw The Friends of Eddie Coyle, and what did you think? I've always been a big fan of the the noir genre, uh, pretty much. You know, in in fiction, we call it noir, even though you wouldn't consider it, you know, a film noir, a crime book. I first saw this about 20 years ago. At the time, I wasn't as enamored as I am now. My own writing, which, you know, I'm not on the level of this, obviously, but I've always been kind of heralded for my dialogue. And the thing is, Elmore Leonard was a big influence on me. Well, Friends of Eddie Coyle and George V. Higgins were the biggest influence on Elmore Leonard. So it just ends up trickling down, I guess. So uh, then I went back and I started diving into these and you can't help but love Higgins dialogue, you know, and that's almost exactly what you get in the movie is the dialogue from the book. I was very surprised reading the book that it is almost purely dialogue. There's very little description in it. Less than anything I've ever seen, honestly. It's there's really no exposition. As his books went on, you know, he started putting a little bit more in, but that first book, The Friends, that was his first published novel. By that time he'd written something like sixteen novels that he ended up dumping in the he he supposedly went out and burned them after Friends of Eddie Quayle got published and blew up. But he actually wrote his first novel when he was 14 years old. I believe he was 31 when this came out. And Eric, how about you? So I first saw this about uh, 2009, 2010. I had heard about it a couple of, a couple of places. But when it came out on Criterion, they, had a, they got the DVD at the library I worked at, and I checked it out. And uh, for me, it, there's two things in play with this. One is that it's a different kind of crime film or noir film from a lot of what came before. I mean, there's maybe some hints of what's in this in a, in a film like the detective from the late sixties or, you know, watching it the other day, I was like, Oh, this is a lot like the Anderson tapes from 1970. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, little things that kind of cross over there. It was, it was just something that was presented as a more realistic kind of crime or noir film. The other thing for me is that my, my parents actually met in Boston in the late sixties and my uh, my grandmother and my aunt and uncle were were living there at the time that this film would have been made and that the book would have been written. And into maybe the late 70s and maybe the very early 80s, a lot of what you see in the film is very much what Boston was until we get to to the 80s. So for me, there was a little bit of like, I don't remember exactly these places, but I know that I was around them. And I actually watched this film with my uncle who grew up in Boston in the 60s. And he was pointing out, he's like, I remember Government Center. I remember places looking like that. I remember people that dressed this way or talked that way. There was kind of a familiarity there from, from my personal experience. I did want to point out, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this film, it's not glamorous. It's a crime story that that has all of the glamour removed. This isn't, you know, Steve McQueen doing this big diamond heist, this elaborate thing, you know. No, you're, you're getting, in this era, at the time that this was made, you know, you also had things like Straight Time, which, you know, we did the podcast on before, Mike, and you had, you know, um, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, these movies that are about really 
I want to say blue collar, but in, in a lot of cases less than that. I, w- I would say, you know, the very almost dregs of society. There's no, you know, and, and the, the desperation in this comes through because this is a man that, yes, he's they make a, a comment about him. You know, he, the cop uses his fingers and, you know, puts his fingers together and says he's he's about this high in the in the crime world. But somehow he's everywhere. You know, this is about somebody that even in those that milieu, he's considered as something very, very low. These are, I can't even say like the soldiers that are in the mob. They are, yeah, they're just like these, these little nets that are kind of going around. And, and it's like the crime, it's not necessarily dried up, but it's like there's so few things going on that the Richard Jordan character can be putting uh, feelers out for all of these different things and talking to all of these guys who are all involved in the same world, but different aspects of that same world. So he's getting pieces of these things. He gets some pieces from Peter Boyle. He gets some pieces from Robert Mitchum, but he's there taking in this information and trying to make sense of it. And it's interesting that the cop character that Jordan is playing is such a pivotal role in this, that this isn't just a gangster story. This isn't Mitchum versus Boyle or, you know, Alex Rocco versus this character. There's so many different characters that are all going on, but they all kind of meet at Richard Jordan, who is this cop who's trying. He's also not living his best life. He's stuck in one department when he really wants to be in another department. I think he's in vice when he wants to be on like a a crime case. He's actually an ATF agent. You know, the movie's made in 73. The book comes out in 70. And I looked into it a little bit because, remember, there's a point where he identifies himself as a treasury agent. This is a point where ATF is under the Department of Treasury. And they, I guess, had recently been moved there after the Gun Control Act of 1968. And they are obviously investigating alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which is what kind of brings him into not only the the gun dealing that's going on, which is one of the two big crimes we see, but also the backstory of Mitchum and this truck uh, filled with alcohol. That's why ATF would potentially be involved with that. George V. Higgins was a lawyer in Boston, so he dealt very much with this, the underworld a little bit. In his biography by Edwin uh, H. Ford II, it talks a little bit about him being enamored at one point with uh, some of the crime world lawyers that he would see come in. And that's part of where he gets this very realistic view of all of this, or at least, you know, I don't think any of us are criminals, but what at least feels like a very realistic Mm -hmm. view. And there's again, there's no glamour to this because even the cop is not a good guy. None of these are good people. This is a world that's very uh, populated with People that are kind of scumbags. And everybody's trying to fuck over everybody else. And they make no bones about it either. No. Can we talk about Boston for just a moment here? Uh, This is Boston in the 70s. And, you know, with this book and Robert Parker's Spencer novels, and then later on Dennis Lehane, this becomes, you know, one of the centers of crime fiction in America as far as authors and books and stories about crime and the underworld and this kind of rundown city that's it's not L.A., it's not New York, but it's, you know, almost as big. It's, you know, it's got the history of a New York. It doesn't have maybe the population or the or the sometimes glamour. I mean, this is a this is a rundown city that's, you know, in the middle of probably not bottomed out quite yet. And, and additionally, there's a generational shift going on here. We see older criminals and we see younger criminals. 
and we see like middle-aged, maybe professional criminals as well. And that kind of also plays into, you know, this is a city that has Harvard University and big institutions, but also has this decaying blue collar South Side that's going to be exploited in not not just, you know, Higgins work and not just Parker's work, but Lehane and a bunch of other people that are going to be coming into the crime fiction genre in the next 10, 15 years. And it's still such a rich vein to tap. I'm trying to think of uh, the. There have been a few movies that Ben Affleck has made that has worked in this world. You talked about the Hane. I mean, Mystic River. The adaptation of that was just a few years ago. Probably more than I would like to remember. Of course, The Departed. Yes, I mean this is such a rich vein of crime. And there's also this strange level of pride that goes with Boston. Whenever people talk about from Boston that are from there. It feels like they speak about it with a lot of pride. So there's always a lot of like, they're making this film in Boston. This is important. And God help you if you don't get the accents right, you're going to hear about it. In a town where loyalty is king, where the line between right and wrong is blurred, and justice is anything but blind, one thing reigns supreme. You all know me. I'm not just a cop, I'm a father. I'm a son, and above all, I'm from Boston. Boston Accent. The politician with the upscale Kennedy-type Boston accent. I am the mayor of Boston, and I was elected to clean up this town, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to get my hands dirty. The townie who says the word bro in every sentence. Bro, don't tell me to chill out, because I'm cranked up, bro. And I know where you live, bro. And bro, I know where you work, bro. And bro, I know what you drive, bro. A Nissan Maxima, bro. And one actor who decided at the last minute not to do a Boston accent at all. I'm going to go park the car in Harvard Yard. Well, there's also Spotlight, which is, you know, about a newspaper, but also is focusing on a major crime issue historically in this, you know, in this geographical area. Eric, you mentioned the thing about the criminals of different ages. Mitchum's character's 51, he says, uh, at this time. So here he is. He's he's trying to deal with these younger criminals. And, and so he has a little bit of wisdom, even though it's very clear he doesn't often know what the hell he's doing. And we find that out from things from his past that he has made mistakes along the way. But it is interesting when he's trying to give advice, you know, to Jackie Brown, the gun dealer, you know, and he's talking about, you know, he's an older criminal. He's been through some of this and he's trying to pass along the advice. And as young people do, Jackie Brown doesn't really give a shit, kind of blows him off. But it is interesting to see sort of those, uh, you know, those different generations of criminals, both bumbling, trying to communicate, trying to work together in whatever I say work together. But I, I don't know that they really do that very much. But, you know, Mitchum's character is trying to kind of lend advice. And it turns into eventually a threat. You know, the advice ends up turning into a threat. Like he starts out, you know, telling him what he needs to do. And it ends up being, you know, this is what you're going to do. I was recommended this film years and years ago. And I caught it, I don't know, sometime right before the Criterion uh, release was uh, happening. And I will be honest, I did not like this film the first time I watched it. One reason is because I didn't necessarily know what was going on because I'm used to a certain type of crime film. So I was very not used to 
that we start off very early in this film with a heist. Usually that would be more of a first act end or something or leading up to a heist. I'm not used to the criminals turning on each other so quickly. All of these phone calls that Mitchum is making, he's dropping a dime on anybody he can drop a dime on. The way that Richard Jordan knows both Boyle and Mitchum, and that, like I said, he's sitting at the center of this web, it just felt very strange to me. And then it really took going back and rewatching it, reading the book, figuring out a little bit more about who these characters are. And I will say the last time I watched it, I really enjoyed it. And it does hold pretty close to the book for the most part. And like you said, Andrew, a lot of the dialogue is just 100% taken out of the book. They know what they're doing because that dialogue is just so rich. You know, a lot of times when Elmore Leonard's work is adapted, people screw it up, even though the, you know, the dialogue, the, I was going to say the lyrics, but the lyrical dialogue is right there on the page. You know, a lot of people other than Scott Frank and Tarantino haven't really used that, you know, and that's where they screw up. Well, you know, here you have a, a an opportunity where, you know, Paul Monash, who ends up doing the screenplay, the producer that does the screenplay, takes the dialogue almost verbatim out of the book, crafts it into this great screenplay. And so you'd think, well, wow, it's got to be super easy to make a screenplay from a George V. Higgins book. But what's interesting is that Higgins himself uh, later gets hired from Daryl Zanuck to adapt Digger's Game. He gets $150,000 for the rights in 1973, and also he's supposed to write the script. And he ends up bowing out because he finds it difficult to adapt himself, which I find fascinating because so much of the dialogue is already there on the page. But from what I read, I guess he wanted to put too much in. He couldn't figure out what to cut. And those are two completely different mediums. But it's it's really interesting that what would seem to be easy was easier for Paul Monash than it was for Higgins himself. What's smart, too, the way that they take certain things and will move them around. So, like, the way that the film ends with that pigeon story, which is really early in the book. But to use that as the kind of coup de grace at the end... Very, very smart. So Monash definitely knew what he was doing. He had a great ear for this and knew where also to put this for pacing. I have multiple copies of the book, and one of them has an intro by Dennis Lahane, and he says in it that not even Higgins himself, who spent the rest of his career trying to fix what wasn't broken, uh, attempting to refine his dialogue in subsequent novels to such a degree of phonetic miscalculation that it became near parody he took the step of letting the dialogue tell the story and then for whatever reason spent the rest of his career trying to you know to to move along to either the next thing or not realizing that was his strength either of you read the keller novels by lawrence block there's stories about a hitman Uh, and one of the interesting things about these books is the story is everything that the hitman is doing around the hits we don't get the story of the hits He's using a narrative device to tell this story. So it's him taking his dog to the park or shopping or preparing or traveling. And then the hit happens and we skip to him going home. I was reminded of that by friends of Eddie Coyle, the book, because of just the dialogue. He doesn't need to give a lot of description for you to know what's going on. It's all there and how people are talking. We talk about how this this book blows up, then this the movie comes along. So you'd think this is a man. Well, I, I point this out because you talk about how he ended up Higgins becomes a parody, trying to copy the success he had with the first book. And after the first book, 
he never really pulls it off as well. He has a couple of crime books that are really good. Then he ventures off into doing political reporting and different things. But with this first book, okay, he it blows up. So at the time, he gets $52,000 from Bantam for the paperback rights. After he'd already sold it to Alfred Knopp, he gets all good reviews, like almost universally good reviews. Uh, he gets nominated for a National Book Award, but he's not happy with the way that his book is received because he doesn't want to be just a crime writer. He wants to be seen as a literary force, you know, as a literary writer. And he ends up embracing the book crowd of England because he feels like they appreciate real literature, which, of course, that really means they appreciate him. But they appreciate him as a literary talent rather than just a crime writer. Here is this huge success that any other crime writer would absolutely kill for. And, you know, he's kind of sad to not be seen as a literary writer. And also the success and all of the things that he goes through as a result of this starts to eat away at his at his marriage and sends him down a path where eventually he'll get divorced. And, and it's almost like a Twilight Zone episode or something. You know, this guy gets his wish, gets everything he wants, and then, you know, things don't quite go the way that he wants. And and it is interesting that he's never quite able to duplicate this ever again. I didn't realize that some of his, well, one other of his books for sure was adapted, and that was Coogan's Trade or Kogan's Trade, which was adapted into Killing Them Softly. How is that one? It gets bad reviews. Uh, a lot of people really don't like it. I do like it, but I thought it was interesting because they tried to kind of jam some political stuff in it. It doesn't really feel like it belongs. It feels like it was shoehorned after, you know, like it was an after the fact decision. We're making it. Hey, let's put every criminal's listening to political radio. They're listening to speeches by Obama. There's a line in it. And I don't remember it, but there was a line in it where Brad Pitt says something about it becomes this big statement on America. And I didn't feel like that was what Kogan's trade was really about. But the crime story itself is, I thought, was really well pulled off. But again, even the book, the dialogue isn't is not nearly as good as as it is in Friends of Eddie Coyle. I've only I've only seen the movie and it did not leave a big impression on me. I get um, that. Well, I remember my ex-wife. So I drive her. We have to I live in a little town, so we have to drive several hours to go to uh, go to the theater. And anytime, you know, crime movies come out, I'm like, let's go. So we go up and she and she was really didn't enjoy it at all. And so what's funny is I mentioned it uh, to her not that long ago, and she didn't even remember it. Like she says, well, that tells you what a market left on me. And and I, that probably plays to exactly what uh, Eric's saying there. You know, but I, I liked it, but my tastes are sometimes suspect. I mean, I like Creed. So what does that tell you? Creed the music or Creed the movie? Uh, Creed the music. You know, everybody talks about how much Creed sucks. I mean, they're not my favorite, but but they're okay. And that's probably how I would say about Killing Them Softly is it wasn't my favorite, but I liked it okay. I, I do think that there's there's been a, an, an issue with Hollywood trying to adapt essentially 70s crime stories in, in the modern era because the 70s is so much of that post-Vietnam, pre-Reagan, cities crumbling, old structures crumbling, this massive generation of young people clamoring for – you know, a foot in the society, the oncoming of Generation X, you know, the oldest Gen Xers are starting to get into their teens and just trying to do that in, in you know, 2008 or 2012 era is just it doesn't feel right because those eras are so specific. And, you know, even more than the generational shift, there's a technology shift 
Now, I mentioned um, the Anderson tapes. You know, you couldn't really do that book or film today because of the change in telecommunication technology. I'd be honest, I don't think you could update Eddie Coyle to today. I think that it's such a piece of, of that time and place. Now, if you took a character, like I mentioned, Spencer, Spencer, you know, those books lasted long enough that you could take the later books and, you know, they wouldn't feel completely out of place with cell phones and computers. But definitely, if you tried to make, you know, the first dozen Spencer novels and, and set them today, it just would not work. Well, and that's kind of the thing with Hollywood anyway. They want to update everything. You know, we've gotten to a point where people consider 70s movies period pieces like you're talking about Amadeus or something. I would like to see if they were going to adapt these things, that they just set them in the time that they were written. Then you don't have to worry about those things. You know, make them like, you know, Donnie Brasco or something. But Hollywood always has other ideas of how to improve upon these things, which always seem to make them worse. There was something interesting in the book that comes through a little bit in the movie, but not as much as I would think it would, which is the couple in the van that are trying to buy guns from Jackie Brown. That is very interesting to me, and that's maybe something that, if you were to watch this movie today and not realize what was going on in the political atmosphere of the early 70s, what these people are doing. I mean, these are people that are ready to take down the man. These are revolutionaries. In the book, there's a third person with them who's a black guy, and there's a lot of mentioning of black people, especially there's a big fear of the Black Panthers. And that is one thing that Eddie picks up on pretty early when he's talking with Jackie Brown, is that Brown mentions that there's some black people that want to buy machine guns from him. And that sends off a little bit of a a ding over Eddie's head, and he thinks, I can use this with Dave Foley, the Richard Jordan character, and let him know that there are black people looking for guns, and that will be a major break for, for Foley, because he'll be able to stop the Panthers from getting guns. And then there's also a fear of wise guys from Boston or from wherever teaming up with the Panthers, because that would be really horrific, because you have these two outlaw organizations, according to the FBI, that are now joining forces. And there's also talk about how that will never happen, because there's inherent racism that is there, that they could never work with black people in that way. So it's it's very fascinating that these days, maybe these days, I mean, Thank goodness for Black Lives Matter. But, it, you know, if you were to watch this now, seeing this stuff, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on how revolutionary these two characters are because they seem like they're kind of like idiots, but they mean business. They strike me very much as the weather underground type. And I, you know, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is part of that 60s, you know, counterculture revolutionary mentality. I mean, we had the White Panthers here. I went to high school with the children of people who were in the White Panthers. They're what I referred to earlier is is kind of the you know the younger criminals and amateurs. They're talking about robbing banks and where the heist crew that we're seeing actually rob banks are professionals trying to make money for themselves. These are people that want to rob banks to fund their revolution, very much like the Weather Underground did and People don't remember or have never read about or been taught that there were bombings all over the place in America in the the early 70s. And these revolutionaries were robbing banks and armored cars. If you've ever seen the movie Running on Empty, that's all about revolutionaries who are uh, gone underground because somebody got hurt when they were bombing a lab. 
Uh, there's there's so much of that, that you, but you have to know the context. Otherwise, it's like, why are these young white kids wanting to buy machine guns? The other thing is buying machine guns for robbing a bank is kind of amateur hour. It's overkill. We see the the professional bank robbers do it with a couple of revolvers. We talk about the time frame because it is important to realize, you know, the revolutionaries and stuff. But also, you know, as was mentioned, Vietnam's going on at this time. And when the book came out and, you know, it was nearing the end when the movie comes out. And so, you know, I had read somewhere where uh, and I don't recall where it was, but it's an interesting point, maybe where it said, um, you know, that a lot of audiences at the time felt they, they were coming at this. Uh, they they felt like underdogs in the system and they could kind of relate to Mitchum, who is sort of an underdog in the middle of all this, you know. And but one thing I did notice in this scene uh, where you're talking about the two, the revolutionary couple, they say fuck several times in the movie. But I don't know if they had to trim some fucks to maybe maintain their rating, because in that conversation, there is a part where Jackie Brown, you can read his lips and he says, fuck, but it's changed to good damn. I don't give a good damn. And I but and I, I rewound it back to look again. And for sure, he says fuck, but it's 80 yard over it. Good damn. And but they say fuck everywhere else. So I so don't I, know. Maybe they had a limit. We can only say 33 fucks and not 34, you know, or whatever. But that may be. But I was listening to the commentary and the director says that they had to ADR that scene because of the noise from the river. Because oh. they were filming outside by the river there. So I, they might have changed the. You know, change the dialogue, but there was there was a recording issue because of ambient noise there. That also is a generational thing because while the wise guys and criminals are gonna gonna cuss and swear, you know, there's not the shock value with young white, probably middle class kids uh, saying those words that they've been told not to say for the last fifteen years. And you know, something else that struck me is that. The, the revolutionaries are, are, you know, they come off. I think one of them's wearing an army surplus jacket, right? And they're they're kind of kind of dressed in these baggy, oversized clothes. And then later on, you see the heist crew, and they're all wearing pea coats. Now, pea coats are military issue, but they're also the kind of thing that were very popular in Boston at the time, according to my relatives, because of the weather. And it's like a uniform for older people, and it's it's got that military context to it, but it's not the same as counter revolutionaries or revolutionaries wearing uh, army surplus from Vietnam. It's just a little bit of symbolism, whether the costumer intended it or not, it, I don't know. But it kind of struck me, and I went, huh, that, that's kind of interesting. It's weird, too, that Andrea, the revolutionary, she's really the one in charge, it feels like, as opposed to the world of the mob, the Eddie, the the Dylan, the Foley. Like, Foley's not mob, he's cop but um it's all is men. there a difference <laughs> you know it's it, it, it's all men in that world like we see eddie talking with his wife and she's just such a, a sidelined character that it is interesting that andrea is the one in charge when it comes to the revolutionaries it is a kind of a, a again that generational gap where it's like women's lib has happened for her generation it has not happened to mrs Coyle. well and we get a women's lib reference there too because you know, Jackie Brown says, well, you can burn your bra or whatever. But, you know, and he says, yeah. but basically he doesn't give a shit what she says. And But it is interesting also that she's is very aggressive because, you know, she she has three lines or something and they all have F-bombs in them, you know. And I guess that was what stood out to me uh, when I misinterpreted them taking out the F-word from Jackie Brown's line because she's the one spouting the F-word all over the place. But it, but it's an interesting scene for sure. Fucking you. 
cooler, man. This is Andrea. I don't give a shit who she is. Hey, look, I understood there was going to be somebody here that wanted to do some business. How do we know who you are? You don't. Hey, you could be a cop. I could be J. Edgar Hoover. Now, what the hell do you want? We understood you could get us some machine guns. Hey, look, you, you want to burn your fucking bra, all right? But what are you going to do with a machine gun? We're going to rob a fucking bank. Get your five machine guns by Friday. M16s, $350 a piece. You want ammo, it's extra. How much extra? $250 for 500 rounds. It's $2,000. I make that. Be here Friday night with the stuff. Half now. A grand in advance. Machine guns are a hot item. I don't like that. I don't give a good damn what you like. You know, there's kind of a parallel to, I was talking about the quote-unquote danger of the mob and the Black Panthers teaming up. There's also a little bit of a danger when it comes to the Alex Rocco character and the Joe Santos character, because I don't think that Jimmy Scalise and Artie Van necessarily have worked together before. And they're kind of like two mid-level, actual, pretty competent mobsters. And so them working together is kind of like these two forces that are happening and they are pretty successful when it comes to their bank robberies. And I'm, those are the most interesting scenes to me is to see just the way that they pull these heists off. And especially this whole idea of them going in and holding the bank manager's family hostage. And it's very similar to uh, what they would do in, you already mentioned dirty, Mary, crazy, Larry, or crazy, dirty, Larry, dirty, dirty, Mary, crazy, Larry. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's very similar to what they do in there. And then ironically, it's also very similar to what Tim Roth describes in the beginning of Pulp Fiction. What about this one bloke? He walks into a bank with a portable phone. He gives the phone to the teller. The bloke on the other end of the phone says, we got this guy's little girl. If you don't give him all your money, we're going to kill her. Did it work? Fucking right, it works. That's what I'm talking about. Knucklehead walks into a bank with a telephone, not a pistol. Not a shotgun, but a fucking phone. Cleans the place out. They don't even lift a fucking finger. I just realized it's also very much like Richard Stark's Parker character. Peter Yates' film before this is The Hot Rock, which is the Parker novel that became comedic. God, Peter Yates' filmography is one of the strangest things I've ever seen. He is all over the place when it comes to just so many different genres, so many just different storytelling types. I mean, Bullet, it was one of his first feature films. Uh, you already mentioned uh, The Hot Rock, Murphy's War, Friends of Eddie Coyle, Mother Jugs and Speed, The Deep. And then you get into stuff like Breaking Away, which is so different from anything else, or Krull, which we've talked about on this show before. I mean, my God, it's like you look at these and you're just like, this is the same guy who's creating all of these movies. It's really hard to pin him down. He does have a very, very diverse uh, filmography. And, you know, we mentioned the the similarities uh, between the conversation in Reservoir Dogs, you know, and Tarantino is obviously a big fan of this film. And, you know, he sh- because there's a character later on, you know, he, he has Jackie Brown. I don't think that's a coincidence because uh, that character's name is 
not Jackie Brown in the Elmore Leonard novel, but also then uh, he showed Mother Jugs and Speed at uh, his film festival, QT3. But again, we're seeing that, okay, so you see, even though Len- Elmore Leonard had been around forever, his his work takes a dramatic turn mm-hmm. after this novel comes out, uh, Eddie Coyle. So you've got George V. Higgins inspiring Leonard, who then inspires Tarantino. So it's it comes into this big, interesting, full circle thing. Of influence, you know. One of the copies of, of more recent copies of Eddie Coyle that I have, the two author quotes on it. One is from Ross McDonald, who is the, of course, the old school detective writer whose prime was probably in the '60s. So coming off of of his prime uh, era of popularity, not to say that he did not have that through the rest of his life, but his influence was probably most prominent during the sixties. And then the other one is Elmore Leonard, who in so many ways picks up on what's going on with, with this book and carries it on into the eighties the and nineties. See the version that I've got is the version when the film came out and it's got an interesting blurb. It's got a blurb by Norman Mailer who makes a comment that he can't believe a novel like this was written by the fuzz since, you know, <laughs> he was a lawyer and all this stuff, you know, Mailer always wanted us to know how edgy he was. So, I've got a copy of that one, that that version as well. And I actually got this copy the night that I met Elmore Leonard. Oh, so I was, I'm so jealous. I've got uh, a book was, about Leonard coming out. I'm so jealous. Nice. I was working at the Arbor District Library doing security there. And this was 2009. And he was there in conversation with his son, who just had a novel out, and Lauren Esselman, who's another great Michigan crime right. writer. And uh, I only caught a little bit. A little bit of what he was talking about because I was working, but he definitely brought up Eddie Coyle as one of his big main influences. And I was walking through the area where the friends of the library sort their books, and they had this huge bin for books they were going to recycle because they didn't think they could sell them. Sitting there is a copy of Friends of Eddie Coyle from, from when the film came out. So I almost I almost had to ask him to leave the library. It was after the event, and I was walking him and his son out because the, the building had been closed. And we stopped in the main lobby of the library and he lights up a cigarette. <laughs> Luckily, his son is like, OK, we need to move along. He was he was a perfect gentleman. It was uh, it was a very memorable evening. You know, I'm glad to have that one little story. I didn't talk to him for very long, but just just enough, you know, to, to hear him. He was still enthusiastic about writing and storytelling and what he was working on. It was a great little little moment. Totally unimportant, but I'm going to brag about this because this isn't as good as your brag. But but I actually had a story by Peter Leonard, uh, his son, in one of my anthologies uh, collection that I put out. And I actually got a blurb on another book by Peter Leonard. Not quite as good as Elmer, but, you know, you <laughs> what are you going to yeah. do, right? It'd be pretty hard to get one from him now. When I watched this the first time, I was laughing because of the character's name being Jackie Brown and thinking of Pam Greer. And I had read – rum punch and forgot that the character is Jackie Burke. So that is nice that Tarantino is just like, no, no, Jackie Brown. And that's going to be his character's name. Who is also who uh, the actor is what Stephen Keats, who just, he's fantastic in this. I really like him. And I mean, you can take any of these characters in here and you could spin off a movie just about one of these characters because they all just have such a rich life and that they're played by really great actors does not hurt either. I mean, Dylan, it's a very small role, but Peter Boyle 
is not a small actor, and he just brings so much life to it. All of these guys are so fantastic. I love watching them. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a. You guys have heard maybe Alex Rocco on the show before. I absolutely love that guy, Joe Santos, who I mostly knew from the Rockford Files. Always great. Such a great face. Richard Jordan, again, another person who was taken from us way too early. Whenever he showed up in anything, he was just riveting. Even in his fucking three scenes that he had in Dune, I thought that he really got fucked over in that. But like his little role in The Hunt for Red October, I mean, just every time this guy showed up in anything, he was just riveting. And he's great. Another great, great actor in this. Can I shout out two character actors that each get one scene? And if you're watching the film, you'll be like, I know that guy from somewhere. First is Michael McCleary, who plays the kid. And he is one of Dudley Smith's guys in L.A. Confidential. And he was also in, in a not great horror film called uh, Mother's Day. And you know, a really small role in, in Harry and Tonto. But he's he's definitely one of those those faces you see. And you're like, I know him from somewhere. Even – with most of his roles having been very small, he uh, he left an impression. And the other one is James Tolkien from Back to the Future, who's actually, I did not know this, from Michigan, but or was born in Michigan at least. And he has one scene, and he's fantastic. He's wonderful. I just saw him in something that wasn't Back to the Future related, and I'm trying to remember what it was, but it's like, whenever he showed up, he brought something to it. And that he is the key to us understanding just how low level these guys are because he shows up at the end to be like, there needs to be some sort of repercussions for some of the things that are going on. And he's the representation of quote unquote, the man. So like the, the person that's in charge of Boston has taken notice of what's been going on and has sent James Tolkien in here to make sure that things get put right, which I appreciate. And then you get that, incredible ending scene at the Bruins game. This is not a happy ending. This is not one of those movies that you walk away from feeling good because poor fucking Eddie Coyle, there is the irony of the friends of Eddie Coyle. None of these people are Eddie's friend. No, he doesn't have a friend in the world. So I want to back up real quick because I want to interject the thing and then we'll get back to this really bleak ending. <laughs> okay. So you, you had mentioned um, a little about three minutes ago that the – you know how every character really could have its own story. So I find the uh, origin of this interesting and I thought I'd pass this along if you guys didn't know. So before he decides to write this novel, George V. Higgins writes a story and the title of it is Dylan Explained That He Was Frightened. And he submits it to the American, uh, the North American Review. And the editor there says, and this was the first Higgins story that's almost all dialogue. Before that, he had uh, won a national award for a story that he'd written that was like Hemingway, who also wrote Sparse, but it wasn't all dialogue. So this story with this incredibly long title is about Dylan, the bartender, uh, at talking about, uh, you know, how he's he's turning over, he's dropping dimes on these people. And the, the guy from the North American Review says, you know, I really think there's more here. I think if you dig into this, there's a lot bigger of a story. This is the tip of the iceberg. And that is what starts Higgins writing this book, which doesn't even end up being about Dylan. And the other thing that's really interesting is that, that, that there is a character named Dylan in Kogan's trade, 
but I don't know. Some people think it's the same character. I don't know. It could be, you know, like some of the characters in Tarantino's early stuff mm -hmm. have the same names, but we don't. So anyway, you know, because there was always that Alabama. Is it the same Alabama? But um, so I wanted to mention that. But back to that bleak ending. So you, I, I feel almost like a traitor going on with the movie after we've lost, uh, you know, Robert Mitchum's character, Eddie Coyle. He dies and the movie just goes on. It's almost like Psycho. You know, I mean, it doesn't go on very long, but it's just the bleakness sets in because he's gone. And now the people that kill him, they're just kind of going on doing their thing right there on camera. And I just think there's kind of an empty kind of sad thing to that. Yeah, it's very unexpected that we would carry on from that point, and that even though this movie is named after the gentleman, we still just life moves on without him, and it does just kind of show like you can do whatever you want to do, and your when your numbers up, your numbers up, and the story still continues. And I think it also conveys that business as usual thing in this world, you know, that they're in because this man we already knew that he wasn't very important in there, but it kind of lets us know that not only is he not important, but probably nobody is important enough to stop any of this shit from continuing for even, you know, the briefest of times, you know, they take one in the head. Okay. Cause the cop doesn't even care. The cop says, well, the cop knows that, you know, Peter Boyle shot him or he has a pretty good idea. And the cop just goes, eh, I got what I want. And he just walks off. Mm -hmm. They don't even explicitly say that, that final conversation that they're talking around it, but there's no acknowledgement really no, no concrete, explicit acknowledgement that, that Coyle's been taken out. Those two men are the friends of Eddie Coyle. Even though he doesn't necessarily think of the cop as being his friend, those are the two guys. Those are his guys that he talks to the most in the movie. You know, those are the only people I think that we see him really being relaxed with, aren't they? Uh, you know, because other than Jackie Brown, that's the gun guy. And these are his guys that he at any point just feels comfortable with. And neither of them care about him whatsoever. He's dead. Okay. And, but yeah, he's trying to use Foley, trying to do whatever he can to get Foley to go up to the parole board when he has his parole hearing and tell them that basically he's a nice guy and to let him off. And he's trying everything that he can to get Foley to, to do that. And he's, that's why he's dropping dimes on all these people. Hey, there's this gun runner. You should go get him. Hey, there's this robbery that's happening. And the really ironic thing is that. They already knew about the robbery. They knew about it from Dylan. And so when he says, hey, there are these robbers, it's like, yeah, didn't you see today's headlines? They've already been picked up. So he's got nothing. He's got no leverage. He can't use Foley to go up and say anything nice to uh, about him to the parole board. But I don't think there's anything he can say to better his situation because you, you get the feeling that Foley didn't even really go tell that judge. You know, Foley's just oh, wants no. more and more. They're all users. And the cop is a youth. Everybody's just using each other for their own benefit. Yeah. And, and you get, get the impression that the the hit on, on Eddie is ordered because of, went down, of what went down with these bank robbers getting arrested. And he wasn't even the one that dropped the dime that got them arrested. It's almost like Dylan is Dylan's the one that's responsible for that. And Coyle is paying the price for it. Well, that's the genius part of using that pigeon speech at the end. I heard a guy on television the other night. He was talking about pigeons. He called them flying rats. I thought that was pretty good. What he had in mind, he was going to give them the pill or something to make them extinct. Now, uh, there was a guy that got shit on, probably got shit on again. Then he got mad. 
He ruined his suit or something, so he's going to spend the rest of his life getting even with pigeons. They ruined a $400 suit. Now, uh, there's no percentage in that. You know, because there are probably uh, 10 million pigeons in Boston alone. All of them laying eggs every day, which generally produce more pigeons. All uh, dropping tons and tons of shit every day, rain or shine. And this guy in New York, he's going to, well, there just aren't going to be any more of them in this world. Yeah, man gets desperate. He does a few things. He knows it won't work. Pretty soon he quits. Packs it all in and goes away someplace. It's the only way there is. Foldy is the guy who's should be not necessarily killing the pigeons, but arresting the pigeons. And Boyle's just like, you know, I figure the way that uh, pigeons mate and there's all these eggs and da-da-da-da-da, there's just no percentage in it. This is him arguing with Foley saying... There's no percentage in picking me up. I'm going to continue to give you these collars. You might as well just let me go right now, no matter whether I killed Eddie Coyle or not. It's a nasty, nasty, bleak, bleak story. It's it's beautifully bleak, you know, but and, and really nothing in the movie. Like we talked about, there's nothing pretty in the movie. There's no the cinematography is not pretty, The but it's just everything. It's just going for this really gritty, edgy world where no one gives a fuck about anyone and. It's sort of brilliant in its darkness. The color palette in this movie, it's so drab. You know, the the the, the lighting is so drab. I mean, uh, Victor Kemper just, it looks great. You can see everything that's going on in here. The framing's really good. But man, oh man, it's like other than the neon lights in, the, in Dylan's bar, you're not getting very many bright colors at all in here. This is a really run-down look to it. It's perfect that we're recording this when we're recording it because it is that world outside right now, at least here in Michigan. It is really starting to look drab, overcast. You know, the leaves are falling. It's it's very important that this is set when it's set because this is that end of the year and it also really kind of calls to mind the whole end of Eddie Coyle. And Mitchum with that hangdog look, the way that he's throwing out this dialogue, everything is so spot on with his performance. His speech about when he got his hand broken, oh, it is just perfection. I hope you look closer at those guns than you did at that hand. Look at your own goddamn hand. Yeah. Count your fucking knuckles. All of them? Count as many as you want. As many as you got, I got four more. You know how I got those? I bought some stuff from a man I knew his name. The stuff was traced. The guy I bought it for, he's at MCI Walpole for 15 to 25, still in there. But he had some friends. I got an extra set of knuckles. They put your hand in the drawer, then somebody kicks the drawer shut. Hurt like a bastard. Jesus. What makes it hurt worse? What makes it hurt more is knowing what's going to happen to you, you know? There you are. They just come up to you and say, look, you made somebody mad. You made a big mistake, and now there's somebody doing time for it. There's nothing personal in it, you understand, but it just has to be done. Now get your hand out there. You think about not doing it, you know? When I was a kid in Sunday school, this nun, she used to say, stick your hand out. I stick my hand out, whap, she knocked me across the knuckles with a steel edge ruler. So one day I says, when she told me, stick your hand out, I says, no. She whacked me right across the face with the ruler. Same thing. 
They put your hand in a drawer. Somebody kicks the drawer shut. Ever hear bones breaking? Just like a man snapping a shingle. Hurts like a bastard. I don't know who you've been selling to. But the man tells me you got guns to sell. I need guns. Oh, look, you can't trace these guns. I guarantee that. You better. Neither one of us will be able to shake hands. It feels like this could have been written for him, and I know it wasn't, but, you know, at least as far as the book, because it's, but, you know, it's it's the perfect role for him. It was a role he was born to play. Yeah. The way that it's shot, there's a lot of shooting up from a lower angle, and then the, the locations, you know, Boston can be a very photogenic city, but they're they're picking, you know, drab parks or generic parks or the, you know, the shopping center or you know these these rundown bars or houses that that are cramped. You know, even the bank branch is just it's just a you know slab of a building. There's nothing architecturally interesting about it. And then you get the the train station as well. That's just you know like a dirt parking lot in overhang to protect people who are waiting for the the train into the city. That all plays into setting up the mood. And even when they go to the game. You know, they go to this hockey game and they're way up in the stands. There's a shot where you're looking down onto the rink and you can barely see it from where they're sitting. You know, there is one minor thing that it's not a complaint, but it's an observation because I do think that in its way, I believe this movie is a masterpiece. But I sort of see the Eddie Coyle character as being a much more slovenly, like just low, down low, just at rock bottom guy. And, and he doesn't really look that way to me. You know, I mean, he plays it that way and that's great, but that, that was one thing that I did see is about probably the only really recommendable thing from killing them softly. But those characters look like they just crawled out of the gutter. And for all intents and purposes, Eddie Coyle is in the gutter. I, I never get that. He doesn't really have that look. He just looks like they all just look very, not necessarily clean cut, but cleaner than I would think that they probably would look. Because we're talking about the dregs of society. It was almost like the I, – I did really like the adaptation recently of um, The Devil All the Time. But but I kind of had that complaint with it too because in the book, those are really disgustingly dirty, crappy people. And you had some people that were kind of good-looking people that were dirty down a little bit. But, you know, and don't get me wrong. Robert Mitchum is a – he's a rough-and-tumble guy. But I, I just – he didn't – it seemed like they could have tried to dress him down a little. I don't know. That was just my take. But but I, I mean, love his performance, obviously. Their skin is all too clear. That's it. They, they should be a little grittier, maybe pockmarked, maybe windburned. There you go. You, you know, it's, it's that time of year in Boston. It's cold out. You know, their noses aren't red. They're not. They don't, they don't look a little of, rough around the edges on their on their skin that you would you would think of with with people. But that probably aren't taking care of themselves all that great. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hair in this film. That's, that's, right. you know, out of place or whatever, but that that's maybe about it. So what are the names of those, uh, the guys that made uncut gems, you know, those brothers, Safety uh, brothers, right? The Safety brothers, all of their movies have these guys that look so authentically dirty. And uh, you know, you might have a mainstream looking guy at the, in the lead, but you've got, and they'll dirty him down, but everybody around, Looks like, you know, they probably just shot up with some heroin for the third time of the day and climbed out of a dumpster where they ate their lunch, you know. And so I, I kind of appreciate that level of grit. And I felt like, you know, there could have been a little more grit to this, but that's a very minor, I can't even call it a complaint, observation, I guess. 
It is interesting that in Higgins's work, he rarely refers to Eddie as Eddie. Other characters will refer to him as Eddie, but when he's talking, when Higgins is is talking about things, he just will say the stocky man. You know, the stocky man sat across from Jackie Brown and allowed his coffee to grow cold. He he will name Jackie Brown, but he doesn't necessarily name Eddie throughout this book, which is really interesting that Eddie is like, even though this book is called The Friends of Eddie Coyle, it is so much about the friends and not that much about Eddie Coyle. So I can see what you're saying as far as like Mitchum is kind of put together and he's not nearly as stocky as I, I picture like somebody like me. I picture a slob, you know, I picture somebody with a big gut hanging over their pants, uh, over their belt. I don't see that with Mitchum because Mitchum is just fucking Mitchum. You know, he's fucking fantastic. He did actually put on weight for it, but it doesn't really show much. But uh, one of the things I have to say as a writer that even though I see, I love this book. I love this book. And but the one thing that drives me a little crazy and it's a very, very minor thing is that even though the book is almost all dialogue and you'll have scenes with two characters, it'll still say said such and such, such and such said. And it's after almost every line like he didn't have enough confidence in the reader to understand, to realize who the hell's speaking when there's only two people. And that does drive me nuts because, you know, most writers don't do that. But the dialogue is so damn exquisite that you almost you don't care. And I saw somebody describe the book. And when I say the book, it, it pretty much applies to the movie, too, because it's the same dialogue. Somebody talked about, you know, the plot being sort of basic. But, you know, and, and how the whole all of his books, his crime books are really just a vehicle to carry that dialogue because the dialogue is the star. The plot is secondary to the dialogue. Well, you're describing pretty much all of Quentin Tarantino's work. I mean, the plot is secondary to the dialogue. Probably not a coincidence. You know, I wrote a book about Tarantino and, and I, and I think you could say that about a lot of my books too. And you could say that about a lot of Elmore Leonard books. So again, right or wrong, this outlook trickled down from Higgins. Well, and, and this is also probably a, a shift away from a certain kind of storytelling that was that was the dominant crime storytelling in, say, the 50s, 60s, maybe into the 70s. But into the 70s is where we start seeing these things change up. And we see – I don't want to say the old guard as much as we see the passing of the torch from guys like Ross McDonald or John D. McDonald to people like Lawrence Block or Donald Westlake, Higgins – or Elmore Leonard, you know, and a whole host of people, you know, Brian Garfield, that people don't even necessarily know of or think of these days. And a part of that is the shift in the culture and the generation. But I think probably it's also the shift in media as far as television uh, moving into the 70s, becoming maybe not more experimental, but more daring with the content. And then definitely in the late 60s through the 70s, film becoming more uh, more willing to be experimental and less willing to hold your hand. And maybe not the indie films of the 90s, but you're getting what, what mostly inspires the 90s indie films coming from studios and smaller studios. There's a while where Higgins was a, uh, was a reporter before he becomes these other things. And so after he sells this book and it took several publishers to find the right find somebody that would take this book which again is fascinating another writer reaches out to him that he used to work with as a reporter so the guy reads his book and he says something like you must have been a big fan of Chandler and Hammett and Higgins had never read any of them 
I, I've not seen anywhere where he talks about any of the crime writers before that. So I think that that's kind of where some of the uniqueness comes from is that he, I don't know that he really drew anything from any of those. And so that's partially where you get some of this shift. If, if we're to believe, you know, that he had any kind of instantaneous, which, which I think he did instantaneous impact on the rest of the genre. So this was the first book where we see such dialogue and, you know, where it's just dialogue, 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 hardly any exposition. So like I said, he goes to multiple publishers and, and I find it interesting that he finds a publisher at that time because even today, people are kind of shocked by that when they see that. So uh, I remember seeing a review for Kogan's Trade on Amazon and somebody says, this book was horrible, all dialogue, strictly amateur hour. But it's funny because here's the guy that for doing exactly that, got nam- nominated for a National Book Award, gets all these all these accolades, but people are still weirded out by it. You know, there have been times when, when uh, and again, I'm not on that level, but there are things that, you know, I've submitted and they go, well, there's, and, and I write more exposition, but people will still say not enough. Exposition. There's just so much dialogue, you know, and I'll point out these other people and they'll say, well, I, I don't know who they are, which I find really interesting because who the hell by now doesn't know who Elmore Leonard at least is. But I think he really did change the game with all of that. But there's still not that many people doing it. You know, um, we talked earlier about Charlie Stella. Charlie Stella was one that really follows the the Higgins path of just almost all dialogue and well, it's it's hard to break in with with something that's different. Um, just to go back to Robert Parker, I mean, his first book is very much in the mode of, you know, a Chandler or a Hammett, mainly Chandler. Right. But by the time you get into the late seventies, and he's had some success, he can basically do whatever he wants. You know, you've got to play the game a little bit to get your foot in the door, and then once you've built up enough goodwill, you know, you can kind of go off the rails, and that's that's I think a a lot while. You see authors who their early books don't feel as as cohesive or as in their voice because they're they're trying to get in the door. And the the fact is this is so different. I mean, I don't I don't know what would have been the big crime novel right before this. What would have been the the book that everyone was talking about? I, I wasn't around, so I don't know. And as far as from the perspective of being a fan you know those stark is, novels i think those stark novels pre yeah. they were i guess they were about the same time right yeah so, uh, they were they were but they were a little different i'm thinking you know the one that comes to mind is obviously the uh the prequel to die hard uh the detective by Roderick thorpe <laughs> that was was a big deal and they made into a, a movie with frank sinatra that was supposed to be and was to a certain degree more realistic and more looking at real issues rather than at this point, you know, 20 year old PI narrative, right. you know, and I also wonder if what the impact of somebody like Ed McBain is on this, right? You know, he's, he's also a thread through all of these decades of crime storytelling using the police procedural, but also kind of changing with, with the tides each decade. Well, and one thing you're seeing at the same time, uh, cause you mentioned Ed McBain. Okay. So, and which I think he precedes these guys at his beginning. Okay, so then all of a sudden, because Ed McBain's still writing about cops. So for the longest time, everybody's writing about the good guys, the cops, the detectives, even if they're anti-heroes, you know, they're they're rough. They'll slap a woman around or whatever. But everybody's is writing about cops and detectives. And all of a sudden, you've got these guys like Stark and Higgins that are writing about they're writing about real criminals as the protagonist. And 
you're you're right about writers that once they've established their goodwill, they're able to get a little bit more uh, to find their own voice. But it's interesting because Higgins is the opposite, you know. <laughs> so he breaks out the gates with his own voice, with his that influences everybody else, and other people start writing like him. But then he can't seem to remember how to write like him anymore. So his novels seem to get progressively, I don't want to say worse, but progressively less good. You know, Would you say self-conscious? I think self-conscious, definitely, because I think he's trying to remember. It does. Some of them feel like he's definitely trying to find that voice again, you know, and and they seem a little less authentic and a little less comfortable and a little less cocksure as they go. And so eventually he says, well, I'm going to write. So he's got a political novel. He's got the he's got a book about Kennedy. He's got these other things where he just goes in a different direction. So we, we just mentioned Ed McBain, and, and that, that brings me to something else I thought about watching this film is I went to look to see what other movies were filmed in and around Boston in the time this was made. And in 1971, we get the adaptation of McBain's Fuzz filmed in Boston. You know, the same time as Eddie Coyle, The Paper Chase is nice. being filmed in Boston. And then a couple of years later, we get uh, Between the Lines uh 1976, all of which are kind of showcasing to certain, you know, different aspects of the city, but definitely fuzz is showing kind of the more rundown parts of the city. This is 73 when this is coming out. And this is so indicative of some of the spirit of the seventies. And I can see why this movie has then been hailed as a classic because without something like this, I don't think that you get a lot of other movies like, uh, you know, I, you know, Friedkin already has, has done, um, what the French connection or it's just about to come out at this point, right? It's pretty close to this and things like the seven ups and, um, some of these other films. It just, it, it, this feels like it's all part of like the world of cops and criminals. And even though Eddie is, Eddie's kind of a loser, but I don't think that Higgins ever treats him like a loser. And I don't think that the film necessarily treats him like a loser, which is nice that he could be seen as being less than a hero, but he is our hero. But I think he is looked that way by some of the other characters who are also losers, but somehow in the hierarchy of losers, he's, they consider him a lesser loser. But you were talking about these films that get made in the seventies, you know, and this maybe is one of the pieces that start this trend. What's interesting in that same exact same thing, you you look at Peter Boyle's filmography at that time and, you know, at, at the crime stuff or the, you know, the more gritty stuff. And so he's got, you know, friends of Eddie Coyle and Joe, which is, you know, nobody ever talks about Joe anymore, but Joe's got some, some dark stuff, you know, gritty stuff, taxi driver. I mean, then you just go up to taxi driver, which is the gritty of the gritty of the gritty. But I think the seventies is definitely the decade for crime films. And I think, you know, uh, Mike, you and I have talked about this years ago. There are so many great, really, the difference between, to me, crime movies in the 70s and pretty much any other decade is that they're uncompromisingly gritty. Then, you know, and I think you could say that really about film, you know, where you've got the American New Wave guys. But the grittiness is just, and sure, you see some of them in the 80s, you see some of them every decade. But there were so many movies that just didn't compromise. They were unflinchingly just a, a kind of a taste of life, but that really dirty, unglamorous life. Something like this mixed with like a scarecrow. I mean, these are not happy films, but they definitely show you what was happening in the world. This is also the same year that The Outfit comes out. 
another Stark adaptation. And that's right. It was French Connection was 71. I'm thinking French Connection 2, which was 75, which is coming out a couple of years after. So this is right between the two of those. And you're right. Joe, I think Joe is really ripe for rediscovery, especially in this political climate, because looking at that, I just watched that recently and it was just amazing to see the attitudes and hear these things in 1970 and realize that 50 years later, we're in the exact same place. I think one of the problems you're going to get to with Joe, and you're going to get it with a lot of these movies, is that we've got a lot of people that don't take you know historical context into consideration with art. So there are some things that are said in Joe that people's ears would twerk up or would perk up, and and I get that. But you know, it's that same old argument of you know whether or not Huckleberry Finn should be allowed to to exist, and you know because uh, things in the 70s. Guess what? That was a different time. That was 50 years ago, which makes me feel horrible to realize that that was 50 years ago, but. I just it's it's crazy, you know. So many of the things from that time you could not make today. You just couldn't do it. So okay, so we're talking about all this crazy shit. We didn't even talk about. It. You've had Alex Rocco. So I, I had read. Now is this true that Alex Rocco was actually a criminal before he? Is that true? He didn't admit anything to me like that, but he definitely touched about how he came from Boston and tried to get the. He had to work the accent out, which is funny because he never. His voice in this sounds exactly like his voice in everything else. He just has that singular voice to me. I didn't necessarily hear the accent when it came to this. And of all people, it was Leonard Nimoy that told him he had to lose the accent because they were both Boston boys. Which is crazy. And and it's crazy because Rocco plays Mo Green the year before in this really big, much more lavish crime movie, The Godfather. But... You know, so the the story that I had read was that um, Rocco had been part of a a bank robbery gang at one time, and I don't know if that's true, but uh, apparently Mitchum wanted to meet real criminals from from Boston, and apparently he even asked to meet Whitey Bulger, and that didn't work out. But Alex Rocco introduced him to some other people, some bank robbers, and if that's true, it's really interesting. If it's not, it should be true because it's really interesting. It's like that line, you know. Um, I swear that everything is true, and and if it's not, it should be. You know, something like that. But print the legend. Th- that also leads into uh, you know something we I hear at least a lot about modern actors is that the guys that are in this film are people that had lives before they were actors. This is still an era where a lot of World War II or Korean War vets who have actually seen combat or you know seen seen the dirt of life or work construction. Or you get, you know, guys like Brian Dennis Dennehy, who was a truck driver, and they're able to carry off a lot of these these gritty roles because they've been around or they've lived. I mean, even Lee Marvin was a plumber for for many years. So you you get that. Whereas today you have, you know, actors who have been actors. You know, maybe they were waiters here or there or something, but by and large, they don't have that life experience that a lot of the, the people in this film would have had. Well, and I think that that shows with a lot of the actors that we get now, too, because when you look at the tough guys back then, where you've got like Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin and Robert Mitchum and these guys, they look tough. Like they have the the wrinkles and the crags in their faces because they've seen some shit and they've been through some shit. They look rough and tumble. Whereas you look at guys today and by and large, you know, okay, like I like John Wick. That's cool. But I mean, look at Keanu Reeves and compare him to. Charles Bronson, you know, when you look at him appearance wise, Bronson looks like he's literally lived a life that was rough, you know, like he might have been out busting rocks for the last 20 years. The character 
shows in their faces in a way that so many of these because, you know, you look at crime movies now where you've got like Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp's a pretty boy, you know, and uh, yeah, he can act and he can play these things, but he doesn't have that authentic look that some of these guys did. I buy Nicholson much more as Whitey Bulger than I buy spooky eyed <laughs> Johnny Depp. <laughs> oh, what a bad choice that was. Can we just talk very briefly about the uh, Jackie Brown's arrest scene? So what, one of the things that struck me is how chaotic that arrest is. And it's because I'm so used to seeing post-1980, you know, felony stop, felony takedown arrest with a SWAT team. And this is just a couple of, of treasury agents with a, with a couple of cars and shotguns. They don't seem to have a real plan. Once again, to me, that's a sign of the era. Because pickup a lot truck. of those there's a pickup yeah, well, truck, there's a crash. Like this definitely doesn't look like Michael Mann. No. These guys are treasury agents, which means they've been doing that for five, ten, twelve years possibly. And all those fancier kind of SWAT team maneuvers that we get later on, those come a lot out of people's experiences in Vietnam. So that's another element to me of, of the generational shift. It, it's chaos. It's it's all over the place. It's messy, but it's not like it's not Michael Bay. It's not like cars blowing up and right. flipping or anything like that. I mean, if, if anything, it's like Big Lebowski level car accidents. I wanted to mention two lines of dialogue that I think are there. And it's all great. But two lines of dialogue that I think are really fun is, you know, the part where Mitchum says, you know, this life's hard, man, but it's harder if you're stupid. Like, that's a great line. Oh, and the one – I can't remember if it's in the book, and I didn't go back and reread it, but there's the line you know, where um, the, the guy that's supposed to be on drugs asks uh, Jackie Brown, you still writing? No, that was before I heard about making money. Like I love that, you know, and, and as, as a writer, uh, I kind of get that. It's no coincidence that when I go to NoirCon, which is probably 80, maybe 90 percent writers that are there – that that's where this movie comes up so often. And it's because of that dialogue, because of that crackling dialogue that you hear and you can latch on to. And also that cynicism that you just mentioned. Very cynical. Definitely. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Detroit, Chicago, New York, Miami. We're never like this. This is the City of Angels. This is L.A. To live and die in L.A. Rated R. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. That's right. We'll be back next week to do an episode on To Live and Die in L.A., where we'll have an interview with the one and only Willem Dafoe. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Eric and Andrew. So, Eric, what's been keeping you busy lately, sir? I've been on the Dig Me Out podcast. We cover uh, 90s alternative music for the most part. I was uh, recently on their 500th episode where we talked about Nirvana's Nevermind album. Uh, I'm on an episode coming up where we talk about record labels in the 90s. And we just, uh, at the end of October, an episode came out on the band Southern Culture on the Skids that I was uh, participated in. Uh, you can find it at digmeoutpodcast.com. And Andrew, you are always busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. What have you been up to, sir? So I've got a couple of new projects, one that's been out for a little while. Um, I know you're aware of it, but I want to push it again. Uh, I have a book, My Best Friend's Birthday, The Making of a Quentin Tarantino Film. 
uh, which Tarantino, Roger Avery, Craig Hammond all helped out with. Uh, I'm really proud of that book. And uh, as far as the newer stuff, um, I have a novel getting ready to come out called American Trash, which is basically about uh, white trash mafia. It's like Goodfellas told through the eyes of redneck hillbillies. And the other thing was uh, I just completed uh, – I edited an anthology of Hitman stories. That had never happened before, so I thought that would be kind of cool. It's called uh, Dead End Jobs, a Hitman anthology. It's coming out from all due respect. It features a lot of great indie writers, and it's also got people like Max Allen Collins who wrote the Quarry books and, uh, and uh, Road to Perdition. And it's got uh, Joe R. Lansdale who, you know, did Happen Leonard and everything else. So that's what keeps me busy. And my family. My family keeps me busy, too. And you've got something about Carnival of Souls that just came out. Yes, I have uh, an adaptation of Carnival of Souls that came out. Um, we ran, we had to pull it. Uh, it's coming back out with a new title uh, because we found out that even though the film Carnival of Souls was in public domain, a comic book company actually had trademarked the phrase Carnival of Souls. So that ran us afoul of them. So now the Carnival of Souls novelization is titled Nightmare Pavilion. I don't like the title quite as much, but, uh, you know, the book is the same. The story is the same. So I'm pretty happy with that. That should be out this next week. So by the time this podcast come out, it will probably have been out for a while. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.